This is Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. As soon as Paul. Paul, how are you doing? Doing well. Can you? Yeah, it's, it's August. I know. I can't believe it, except for the fact that our kids are currently getting all their school supplies because they start school on Monday. On Monday. Which, on Monday. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, it's, you know, I think they're not thrilled about it, mom and dad. Eh, you know, yeah. we're about ready, I think. So, <laughs> wow, that's, I think ours has another week, maybe even two before mm. they start. Um, but it, it's definitely coming up. We're paying fees and taking yeah. them to school things already. So, I know. And then when they start complaining, I always remind them it seems like they have about a week off every month throughout the entire school year. So you're starting early, but yeah. I mean, they get time off all year round. So I think I'm not that's... sure it's helping, but. The, every month they have that ability to sit down and read for a little while. Exactly. If Hopefully. <laughs> if I can hide their screens from them, yeah. <laughs> well, we are here today joined by Chris Wolak. Chris, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to have you. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you both for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. So I do a podcast called The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read with my friend (laughs) Emily Fine. Um, We're in our sixth year now, and it seems like, you know, just a few months (laughs) have passed sometimes. And then other times I feel like I don't remember a time when we didn't do the podcast together. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just been such a great way to connect with other readers and people who are passionate about books. So I really enjoy that. And um, before that, I had I'm still writing a book blog where I blog about books and libraries sometimes and a little bit of history uh, more these days, I think, um, because I'm currently working on a master's in library Hmm. science with a focus on archives. So my interests are definitely heading in that direction more and more these days. Oh, very cool. That's that's excellent. The reason that I mean, other than us wanting, we, we've had your name on our list of, we need to talk to Chris sometime and see if she'd like mm-hmm. to join us. But this episode today is about Willa Cather's A Lost Lady. It's our Mooks and Gripes summer reading um, or book club pick. That's what surprises me the most. We we were voting on what book to pick back in early June and boom, here we are talking about it now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's gone fast, but this seemed like a very natural place to say, hey, let's see if Chris would be interested in joining us. Do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about your interest in Willa Cather and, and why, you know, how, how that's come up in the past, maybe? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. So I, I think like one of the reasons I'm so hooked on Cather is because she's a writer I discovered by myself on my own mm. when I was in the library looking through literary journals and trying to find more American writers um, because the undergrad college I went to was very heavy on British lit. I was an English major. And um, so I discovered her in a journal called Western American Literature. And I had never heard of her. And I, I grew up in Illinois, but spent a lot of time in Nebraska visiting family and friends and I'm also a lesbian. So when I read this article that, you know, here's this well-known American writer from Nebraska who, you know, P.S. is also a lesbian. I was like, it kind of blew my mind a little <laughs> bit. So that's how I got hooked on Cather. And, you know, it's kind of ebbed and flowed over the years, uh, my interest in reading of her. But um, it was like around 2012 that I 
I had the last Cather novel that I wanted to read. I was kind of stringing them out because you know how it is when your mm-hmm. favorite writer is dead. There's yes. not more coming. <laughs> so she wrote 12 novels and I thought, oh, well, 12 novels a year. Maybe I'll just read all of them one a month to kind of celebrate reading this last novel of hers. So that was kind of uh, my gateway back into being a little bit obsessed with Cather and it's kind of stuck now for about 10 years. <laughs> so we yeah. didn't catch you on a part where it was ebbing out, you know, you're, you're here <laughs> yes. in, 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 a, in a good, in a good spot. <laughs> Hopefully we don't ruin that, you know? <laughs> oh no, no way. You know, we, um, we had uh, Melissa Homestead on the, uh, on the book Cougars and she's a Cather scholar, one of the premier Cather scholars in the world these days. And, also the worldwide expert on Edith Lewis, Cather's partner. Mm. Um, And I had asked her, you know, kind of jokingly, but kind of not, if she ever kind of got sick of Cather. Because I think as an academic, she does study other writers as well. But, you know, as an academic, when you are so focused for so many years with so many expectations of writing about what you're researching, um, I just always wonder about that with academics. Yeah, it's that risk mm-hmm. when there's something that you love and have a passion for, but then you start to study it or it turns into a little bit of a job. That's something I worried about even when we started this podcast a little bit. Just I don't want mm-hmm. this love of books to ever become like clinical or detached from the passion. And so it's it's definitely a real fear, but I'm glad to hear that it hasn't seemed to have gone that way for you, Chris. And yeah, I'll just add on that anybody who has not listened to the book Cougars absolutely should listen. It's I wouldn't say it was like a complete inspiration for our podcast, but that style where you guys are two friends talking about books and it's very conversational Mm -hmm. and it will go down different rabbit trails. I mean, that's exactly what we were trying to emulate. Um, So yeah, if anybody enjoys our podcast who hasn't listened to theirs, definitely give it a listen because I think they have a lot in common. Oh, thanks, Paul. Yeah, Yeah, that was a concern for Emily and I too. We'd never wanted it to become work in that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. We want to keep our love of books alive. Yeah. Yep. And it can, you know, even, even this book club we paul and i weren't really going to do any kind of assigned reading we've now done it a few times or a book club or at least we said we don't feel obligated to Mm -hmm. because there's that fear that it's just not the right time for me to read a lost lady you know i want to come on it when i'm ready and, and fall into it and i don't want it to be something where you know the week before i'm still on page 10 and thinking oh i just haven't enjoyed this and now i've got to read the rest of it Um, and it becomes a a miserable experience. It's, it's a worry that did not happen with the lost lady. First off, it's very, very short. Um, (laughs) but boy, did I, did I love it? We'll get into this in just a second and, and, and more Willa Cather in general. I do have just a few matters of business. We'll take care of quickly here at the beginning. Um, I do want to thank a few, um, folks who supported us on Patreon since our last episode went up. Uh, that is Kit. Veronica Ferdman, Matthew Keeley, and David Hobson. If David's name sounds familiar, it's because he's the one who won the last episode's giveaway um, for the Mark Haber signed copies. And I guess he felt like, well, maybe I better support and pay for those anyway. (laughs) He didn't have to do that, David. No one does. Um, But certainly we appreciate it. Uh, And and I know he got the books. He wrote and said that the books have arrived, signed copies of Mark Haber's novels. Um, With that... I also promised in the last episode to do another giveaway at the beginning of this one. And the book that we are going to be giving away is Haldor Laxness's Salka Valka, which was published um, a few months ago 
by Archipelago Books, and it is translated by Philip Rufton from the Icelandic. Paul and I were trying to think of some game or trivia or, I don't know, something for you to write in to, you know, qualify for the giveaway or to make your entry for the giveaway. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I just want you to write in again and write an email to mooksandgripes at gmail.com. That is going to be in the show notes. It's in the newsletter. You can actually even just respond, apparently, to the newsletter. People have done that. And it still comes to me. I don't know the mechanics. I didn't set that up deliberately. I might not, <laughs> not set it up at all. But if you just reply to the to the newsletter, it'll come to me and just say that you are interested in in entering for uh, to win Salka Valka by Haldor Loxness. Um, it's a big one. I actually sat down last night again to kind of thumb my way through, and I was so tempted to start it, but I've got too many other things that I've started, and I now feel. As Paul knows, a sense of freedom, got some work mm-hmm. stuff done um, this past week, and I need to clear the decks before I jump into a big book like Salka Valka. So I haven't read it yet, but it looks lovely. It certainly is a lovely looking book <laughs> from Archipelago. Yeah, and uh, just just write in and, and we'll put you in for the giveaway. And if I'm not mistaken, you said that one you would ship internationally. Is that right? Yep. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Anybody who writes in, um, I've got it sitting here on my desk, your copy. I'll, I'll ship it internationally. I'll put in maybe a, a goodie or two with it. Um, my best wishes to everybody who joins. I hope you win. Yeah. Good luck everybody. <laughs> but let's get back now to, to Willa Cather and to a lost lady. Uh, a lost lady is her 1923 novel or novella. You know, I, I think it, it's it's in that in that group, right? In my edition, the Library of America, it's a hundred pages essentially, and so it's a short book. But boy, does she pack so much into it! And I was surprised again because I've read. Um, I've I'll just give some of my background with Willa Cather. I first read O Pioneers. That was my my entry point into her work in a, an American literature class. And I really enjoyed it. And I was a little bit surprised. You know, I was naive at the time. I thought, oh, here's probably some happy-go-lucky book about the pioneers, you know, about the West. And and I, Willa Cather is not afraid to show some hardships and some misery and some, some awful things that happened, too. And I was blown away by that book. I've read My Antonia. Um Really enjoyed that one. Death Comes for the Archbishop. I read, what is it, Alexander's Bridge, another kind of short novel, novella, that's, you know, in in my book, her her first, her debut. And that's where I was like, why have I been um, putting off reading everything by Willa Cather? And have really been enjoying getting back into her work. And I'm glad that we read A Lost Lady. But I was, again, blown away. <laughs> Surprised again. Surprised again at how someone that I know can do great work can do such great work. Um, <laughs> you know, so uh, I'd love to hear from both of you. Uh, Chris, I'm assuming since you said that you were kind of going through them all, all 12, you've read all of her novels. Is that fair to yes. say? Yeah. Oh. I'll get there someday. It is a goal of mine mm-hmm. as well. And I think I'm basically halfway there. So I'm, I'm hoping that there's, you know, I guess the maybe the reason why I was surprised with The Lost Lady or still wondering is sometimes you think, well, I've read the major ones. Now I'll read the curiosities that maybe mm-hmm. don't 
don't stick as well or didn't didn't wouldn't have uh, become classics but for these other ones so like i say it was delightful to realize that a lost lady is a part of her her you know part of the reason that she is considered an, a master yeah absolutely I mean, Chris, you want me to jump in real quick? I, I think your your backstory is probably much more compelling on Cather. So if you don't mind, I'll jump in here. Um, I th- We've talked about those books where you get exposed to them at a time in your life where you're maybe not ready for them or you're not in a good place. And that was definitely the case in high school. I remember our high school teacher assigned my Antonia and I just was not, I love to read at that time, but I just, you know, it's that typical Thing that we risk when we assign great books to people to kids you know and so i just didn't ever pick it up and i kind of just did the cliff's notes things and you know skated my way through but i remember oh you don't have to confess all all of your sins Paul. yeah exactly yeah, hopefully I... my kids don't listen to this but uh <laughs> yeah so i just remember our teacher over and over again the th- my big takeaway was nature is cyclical that was like his theme for my antonia i that's the only thing i remembered but anyway years later i uh ended up listening to an audiobook of my Antonia and it just blew my socks off. I was so amazed. I, I loved everything about it. I loved it. it actually, I, I feel like there's a lot of themes that carry through her work. Um, and, and there's definitely some stuff I'll talk about in a little bit that I think between my Antonia and, and a lost lady. But so anyway, that kind of re-sparked my, my interest in her. And then since then I have read The Professor's House. And then I earlier, I guess it was late last year, I read Death Comes for the Archbishop. And then this would be the, I guess, the fourth one. So I'm maybe third of the way through, a little, little bit behind you guys. But as you said, Trevor, it's just amazing to me. Um, every time I read her, I still, I think my expectations get higher every time, and yet somehow she still manages to surpass, manages to surpass them every time, which is quite a feat. So yeah, um, I don't know. Not to give too much of a spoiler, but I actually think that this one today is my favorite that I've read so far of all of hers. Mm-hmm. It's a good trajectory. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, A Lost Lady, I, I often wonder why this one isn't more popular. And I think, um, you know, I'm a, a big read reader as well. So I've read this one a couple times. And and I think really what hit me this time is that it's just, it's a sad story. It's a bleak story. And it deals so much with economics and mm you know, how women rely so much on mm-hmm. men for their life. And I, I think that's hard for a lot of people to really handle um, and to really talk about, say, in high school mm-hmm. classrooms, you mm-hmm. know, oh, pioneers, although it kind of blows my mind, too, because oh, pioneers and my Antonia, is, as you said, Trevor, they're dark. There's mm-hmm. a, a lot of grim reality in those from suicide to attempted rapes to, you know, gender disparities, brothers backstabbing uh, sisters and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's curious to me how teachers kind of cherry pick what they want to focus on with novels in general, but with Cather in particular, it's so easy just to talk about the landscape yeah. and yeah. nature and kind of brush these other realities under the carpet, so to say. And I think that's just kind of problematic in American literary studies in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder too, a lost lady to me is, it has its beautiful passages about nature and the passage of time and it's nostalgia for the past, <clears throat> but she seems to be cutting all of those, um, subverting all of those as well in, in subtle ways. And so the book 
felt more subtle to me. You know, I, there's beauty and, and subtlety in My Antonia and O Pioneers. Death Comes for the Archbishop is still one of my favorite books I've ever read, just for, for so many reasons. They felt easier to grapple with on a first impression. They felt like maybe a little more overt in their in what they were going for. Even My Antonia, I guess maybe because of the first person narrator, you can feel a little bit closer to the characters and to, and to Antonia. But a lost lady doesn't even name our lost lady in the title. It doesn't really name her throughout the book. She's always told through the perspective, but not the first person perspective of this young man, you know, a young boy who grows into adolescence and then into young adulthood named Niall. And she herself is so, there's so many steps in front of us before we get to her that I, I feel it would be a difficult one to to approach with younger readers, you know, it's high school students, even college students, because I think she's doing such um, fantastic under-the-surface work here. And to talk about it, you'd have to get into some really, you know, some interesting and important conversations about gender and about economics and about even the 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 male perspective that is uh, just overcast over this whole narrative about this this woman and i'm not sure if as a teacher i'd want to have all the males on one side of the room and the females on the other side of the room kind of um battling out for whether niles perspectives are valid or not and so i i wonder how much of it is is a little bit of that but i was so delighted by it and hopefully hopefully we can you know, uncover some of that today in in a way that will be invigorating for listeners too. I always worry when we do these that we're going to just talk on the surface of things. You know, <laughs> they're mm-hmm. falling. There's like a meme that has these two podcasters saying, "But then this, that's the thing." You know, and and then and you got this and that, and oh yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I, you know, I have full faith that you two will will not allow it to go that way. And I'm going to do my best as well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because when Cather was, she wrote several drafts of this novel and the first one, it was in the first person. I saw that. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, the way she changed that, I think you do get that more of a bird's eye view when that becomes necessary. And then just even the way she handles the scene where, uh, Marion is going with Frank. They're going on that sleigh ride to get boughs to decorate the house for Christmas mm-hmm. when they're really kind of veering off into the field to have sex and have this affair. And just the way that's revealed by one of the, I think it's the bloom boy who is out mm. hunting and he sees them. And just the way she depicts that there's something very, I don't want to call it beautiful, um, but there's something just very, uh, my word is not coming to me, but it's just so well done Mm -hmm. that she depicts it that way because there's the innocence of the young boy who, you know, he's a a farm boy. So he knows probably what's going on, (laughs) but it's not represented in a a dirty way, so to say, um, from the boy's perspective. Whereas if it were Ivy Peters who saw that, it would definitely be dirty and base and all of those things. It allows us to to maintain our own illusions, you know, about mm-hmm. what's actually happening. 
it it gives us a, a way to to politely and discreetly look away versus put our faces right into it. And I think part of the book is about illusions and disillusionment that is actually another illusion or, you know, some arrogance on Niall's part. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, Do, uh, should we, should we kind of set up the story? I mean, this is our book club. Do you think there are people listening that are like, well, I don't know if I want to read this yet or, or, you know, what, what do you guys think? Should we set some foundation? I think a little foundation wouldn't hurt. I think, you know, it's probably a given, obviously, that we're going to be spoiling, spoiling throughout, <laughs> which with a classic never really feels like it needs to be said, but we should probably just <laughs> warn people, I would assume. Um, but yeah, yeah I sorry. think it would make sense. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> I, I, all's fair. And um, again, it's, it's like, I, I look at this as, as if we've gotten together at uh, someone's home on Thursday night for a book club. And mm-hmm. if you didn't read the book, we hope you will. Yeah. But exactly. we're not going to apologize if you if we ruin parts of the surprise. I don't yeah. think there's a lot of surprise in this one. That's what I was going to say. Is this, I mean, there is absolutely plot driving through it, but I mean, you could know yeah. every single thing that happens and read this book knowing mm-hmm. knowing that ahead of time and it would still have major impact on you. So I yeah, don't think it's Absolutely. Well, yeah, I along, apologize. Oh, go ahead. No, I was go just ahead, say, I apologize for dropping spoilers already. Um, I'm just, Emily and I try to do a really good job when we're talking about books about not having spoilers, unless it is one of our read along picks. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then we try to talk about the book, you know, deeply. So there are, are spoilers. Yeah. No, we've no, had spoilers. Again, even. We, no we created a Yeah, we created a hashtag, you know, f- as many people probably know, and people have been talking about it on Twitter, Lost Lady 2022. So no, I think all the rules are off as far as this goes. Yeah, yeah, and and that me stopping and pulling back was not in a in a response to to thinking oh 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 we better get our readers on board more just um even even for our purposes uh, of of maybe running through some of these topics you know um, I actually uh, on the line of spoilers and still having an impact I finished the book on Wednesday um, when things at work slowed down finally. I went several days without being able to read it and loved it. And then it's, uh, it was available to listen to. So I listened to it again since, oh, cool. and I loved it even more the second time and caught so much and was still surprised, I guess, in, in many ways by the delights of the, of, of un, uncovering or further understanding. So yeah, that no worries on, on that end. But Paul, do you want to kind of give us a sense as to the, the set the scene a little bit for us? Sure. Yeah. So as we've kind of touched on, so this is the story of um, basically, okay, so it's told through the eyes of Niall Herbert, and he's a young boy who lives in this town. I assume, uh, Chris, it's in Colorado, right? Is that kind of... Sweetwater, well, Sweetwater. Uh, you know, I think that it gets kind of murky at times. I think it's Nebraska. supposed to be Nebraska, yeah. but yeah. the first draft it was in Colorado. Okay, and there are so many allusions to Colorado. That's or what not allusions, me. but like mm-hmm. placements in Colorado. But I do think it's Nebraska. Okay, and it, so yeah, she says that one way or another. The beginning says it's it's a beautiful stop from between Omaha and Denver. So yeah. you know, it, it, there's somewhere in that in that range for sure. Yeah. And so it's right along the railroad railroad lines. That's kind of why this town has sprung up. And so when we first 
get a view into this, you know, it's in a time of booming. There's a lot of these barons and, and business people that are coming in and they're all associated with the railroad. And that's where all the wealth has sprung up. But she quickly points out there's this other side to this this community as well, who are not the moneyed people. These are the people who are actually doing the work. And so quickly she creates this dichotomy between there's kind of the us versus them, which plays a lot, I think, throughout this whole book. So yeah, so Neil or Niall, I don't know how you say it, but Niall, I guess, um, lives there in town and he starts to run in circles with this couple, Marion Forrester and her husband. And her husband is a big railroad magnate. magnate. And um, so he starts to kind of get drawn into their world and get little glimpses of, of what they do. And his uncle's a lawyer. So he's involved in that. But then he's also playing with a lot of the other kids who, you know, maybe fall on the other side of the track, so to speak, within the town. And so that's the general layout of, you know, just historical setting. But one of the things that I think we can talk a lot about is this is right on the cusp of where everything is about to change. And it's one of the things she's so good at is catching these moments right where there's this turning point in somebody's life or in a historical place or even in history period. And I think that for me is one of my favorite things about this novel. So it right from the very beginning, she starts dropping these little hints that this is happening, but there's big things that are about to happen that are going to blow it all up. So I don't know if that was a good job laying it out, oh, but sure. that's at least a start. Yeah. And I think we can go ahead and just kind of start filling in any gaps by talking about some themes or favorite parts or ideas that, that excite us. And so Chris, I'd like to invite you if there's something like that, that you're just like, I, I can't wait until we talk about X, Y, or Z. Um, what's something that you would like to explore a little bit or, or kind of give us your insights on? Oh my gosh, insights. I'm not <laughs> sure about that. But one thing um, I wanted to talk about was this time, one of the characters that really jumped out at me was the character of Black Tom. And I think I was looking at this book much more in terms of economics this time. I'm not mm -hmm. sure why, but I just really noticed it from the get-go with how um, the foresters, you know, they don't drain the meadow that they have to turn it into farmland, you know, so there's that, um, that tension between beauty and having something beautiful around just because it's pleasant, and also having the luxury of that, to be able to have the economic standing to do that, versus having to make every bit of land that you own, bring income. Um so later, you know, when Ivy does drain it and turn it into farmland, you know, there's that tension. But with Black Tom, the character, um, so he's the judge's, Neil's or Niall's uncle, right? Mm -hmm. And so the uncle has this servant called Black Tom, who is the, quote, faithful Negro servant. And I just really was struck by how much the foresters couldn't do the things that they do they couldn't have these parties that they had really without Black Tom because mm -hmm. he's, you know, borrowed in quotation marks, I say that by Marion to have these parties. And so that really struck me this time because Cather gets dinged a lot for not talking about race, um, whether it's African-Americans or Native Americans, indigenous people in the area. And I felt like in this book, she does incorporate both. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's a fair point. Yeah. And and Black Tom doesn't come up a bunch, but it, that's, I guess that's that's a good illustration too of what I was saying earlier, where a lot of the stuff she's talking about here comes out 
almost from behind the corner and then walks quickly past. Oh my gosh. And if you blink, you miss it. It's so true because, you know, I've read this one several times and that never really popped out at me. Um, But this time I couldn't not see it. And then how Marion Forrester is equated with Black Tom. You know, there's a scene towards the end where they're taking care of uh, Mr. Forrester, who's pretty much on his deathbed. And Black Tom and Marion go back and forth between the bedroom and the kitchen. You know, when Mm -hmm. he comes, when he leaves the bedroom, she leaves the kitchen to go Mm -hmm. back. And so they have that kind of equal standing in a lot of ways in this world. Um, What is it? It's like the 1880s, 1890s. Mm -hmm. Which is very different. And it starts drawing in that the way that Niall views her, because at the beginning, his first impression of her is her in an elegant dress with all these ruffles, like stepping out of a carriage. And then like, there's a passage where it says they knew that Mrs. Forrester was a very special kind of person. George and Neil were already old enough to see for themselves that she was different from the other townswomen and to reflect upon what it was that made her so. And they thought of her as one of the rich and the great of the world. And so it's that whole tension between the way that she's viewed and maybe in a naive way. And in the beginning, maybe there is some truth to it, you know, cause she does have a nicer house and stuff, but to your point, even from the beginning and then especially towards the end, that all changes, or at least we start to see that there's whole layers there that we weren't noticing at the beginning and that the boys definitely don't notice. Right. Yeah. And, and then the, with the, um, the native American, just how Mr. Forrester as a young man came out you know, to the West and he finds this kind of hill that he really liked that was uh, an Indian meeting place, I believe is what it was called. And he cuts a willow and sticks it into the ground to kind of remember that spot. And then Mm -hmm. later he purchases it from the railroads. So like you have that reality of how the indigenous people lost their land. It was taken from them. Um, And then the railroads purchased it and then he purchased it from the railroad. And Mm -hmm. then then you have Ivy Peters later, who's like ripping off the Native American people. And that is in part how he's making his money. So like, yeah. those are things like I had, I don't remember even noticing those things in the first, the first time I read it, because it was all about Mrs. Forrester and Neil Nile. Sorry, I don't know <laughs> I, I <laughs> which don't way know to either. go with that name. Um, <laughs> N-I-E-L, you know? listeners, that's why we're having a bit of N-I- a hard time. Yeah, in my mind, I was saying Neil as I read it, but yeah, interesting. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great point, though, because there's the overt, like, near the beginning where Ivy, I mean, this is the one of the scenes that people on Twitter kept talking about where he knocks that woodpecker out of the tree, sticks it under a hat while it's stunned, and then he picks it up and slits its eyes and lets it go. So it's just, you know, helpless and running into trees and everything, and several of our of our listeners said they barely made it through that scene. And, and I Mm -hmm. felt that way too. It was so brutal. And it's, that's the overt, you know, kind of rape of nature or, or man having its way with nature. But to your point, I mean, that is a bigger theme that both in more subtle ways or ways that I didn't necessarily pick up on the first time. And that you just brought up, I mean, it's definitely one of the themes she runs with and, and covers that darkness that we talked about where, you know, you don't always think of her that way. But the more you read her books, you start to realize like she's this is not any glossy view of nature. Mm-hmm. This is all kinds of darkness in there. Yeah. And there's a lot of exploitation, you know, 
the Chris, you, you brought it up with the economics, that tension of, you know, you have this land that's beautiful. If, if it's going to make me a lot of money, though, I'm going to have to, you know, use every part of it and drain some of the beauty out, out of it or all of it. And that's just the smart thing to do, right? Because we have resources and we need to use them. We need to develop this. If I don't do it, someone else will come along afterwards and do it for me. And then I don't benefit from it. Um, we look at the the way a lot of the men in, in this in this particular part of, of this community, the wealthy ones, the ones who oversee it, look at everything as a resource to be exploited. There's there, you know, you talked about Black Tom, um, who, who barely, you know, barely gets mentioned uh, throughout, but has a, a, a strong presence if you're looking for it. But even our, our lost lady herself, you know, Mar- Marion Forrester is, is somewhat viewed as one of Captain Forrester's assets. Mm, She's yeah. 25 years younger than mm-hmm. he is. And there's a spot in the book, I, I, I didn't mark it, but I wish that I had now, where he wanted her because she would beautify his house and and make it ple- more pleasant for his guests. And those guests are his connections. These aren't these aren't just friends stopping by. These are these are connections. He she's a marketing um yeah. asset for him. I, I, I do think that he, you know, there it's not just that. I mean, there's a lot of Com- complexity in that but that's certainly one of the things that that his you know he he always looked at her as a very very young young woman for him a prize and and again an, an asset that would become quite useful as he continued to expand and develop um his land he is looked at a little bit more nobly than many of the others he does leave some of his land for beauty um he certainly got that noble part you know we'll, i'd like to talk about it a little bit more here in a bit but where he essentially pays all, you know, uses all of his assets, you know, money, financial assets to pay people who were members of a, of a bank or savings and loan who otherwise would have gone under where none of the other directors were going to put their money in. So he saves a lot of families and, you know, workers by doing that um, at the expense of his own wealth. And, to, you know, ultimately he's an old man. It's really, <laughs> it's really his wife who has to pay for that through her life. Um, but that's Niall himself or Neil himself, you know, as this young man is looking at Mrs. Forrester as an ideal and his disappointment in her is when she does not live up to his expectations of what she should be and what she represents and sees her as failing that not because of her own well-being or for her own well-being, but for his own sense of what is, beautiful in the world and and worth holding on to i just think there's so much interesting here that the economics of it you know are are a big part of this yeah you know the the whole issue too of marion forrester how i don't remember if it's part one or part two that neil finally sees that it takes a toll on her to present the way she does and Mm -hmm. you know you get this sense that she is actually an actor playing this role because it's what's expected of her, you know, and just how exhausting it is to come off stage um, from a night of entertaining like that or or being this um, thing for him, this commodity, mm-hmm. you know, for um, Mr. Forrester. And, and it's really blatant mm-hmm. once you see it, like you can't not see these things. Mm-hmm. And 
she's got to do it for her own economic stability. A lot of the what she's put into is it, it's it's the way she's going to survive. She is a survivor in, in this book. I mean, Captain Forrester saves her at one point from a terrible you know ordeal. Um, but I thought it was. I didn't catch this the first time through. I remember it happening, but I didn't catch some of the details the first time through that she, you know, she was engaged to marry somebody in, in, you know, not long before she met Captain Forrester who was killed, you know, who was, who was um, shot by whom? By another woman's husband. I mean, she's, I, I just think that she's so fascinating because that must be devastating because you know why another woman's husband shot, your fiance. Like there's not, you know, you know, something was going on there, right? but to still come out and, and present that, that laugh that reverberates throughout the novel that makes it so that even in their old age, people can recognize, Hey, in, in Argentina, Hey, mm-hmm. I think that's Mrs. Forrester, right? <laughs> you know, this beautiful laugh to be able to maintain that in the strain of that is, is a, again, a bit of a, you know, it's, it's reductive in a way, but it's it's the economics of it. She's she is playing a role that will is meant to help her survive, and and she has relationships with with men. I think trying to both fulfill that side of her, uh, you know, her sexual side, but also uh, my my husband's not going to survive for long. You know, a lot of these relationships seem to come about because. It's the way she's got to get to the next time, the next stage, or she's going to be, you know, in the street. Um, I hadn't thought about it until you guys were talking, but it has a lot in common with some of the the women in Jane Austen, where we've talked about how they were placed in this economic environment, in this social environment, where they, in many ways, were powerless, and yet there were strong women within the bounds of what they were given who have carved out these spaces and and there's different ways to go about it, but it has a lot in common with that of whatever place you're put into finding a way to survive and be strong and exert yourself wherever you possibly can. So it's interesting when you guys said that. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that Paul, because you know, I'm reading some Jane Austen right now and you know, you think just, you know, if you were in a certain class, you had only these options of what you could do. And she was, you know, Marion wasn't able to get a job. You know, mm-hmm. so it was through men that she was able to survive. And that's one thing Neil dings her for is that she is doing whatever she can to stay alive and mm-hmm. and breaking that illusion or delusion for him of what this lady should be. Mm-hmm. And I just think he's so naive. You want to strangle him at times. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. And, you know, he's a privileged kid. Yeah. You know, he can afford to now go back to school for a year, you know because his uncle's paying for everything. And, you know, he has that privilege to be yeah. judgmental in that way and not see the economic reality of her life. Well, the economic reality. And then I think too, the fact that, what is there a 25 year difference between her and her husband, I think, or something like that. And so the fact is he is way older than her. He's always hanging out with his business friends you know, and then at a certain point, the money starts to go away. So, I mean, there's the economic reality, but there's also the fact that she's a younger woman. I mean, like, mm-hmm. it's not 
you know, she's living with this older man who has his own concerns. It's only natural that she's going to have her own attractions and want to hang out with people that are closer to her age and things like that. So that too, the fact that Neil would just think that she would kind of just sit there and waiting, you know, while the men take care of business or something like that is like you said, shows his naivety and, and maybe his lack of awareness of her as a whole person rather than just this kind of whatever he wants her to be. Yeah. It's a, it's a dangerous game for Cather, I think, to let such a faulty narrator be, well, not he's not the narrator, but such a faulty character be the point of view character for Mrs. Forrester, for Marion Forrester. Because I think this might get into my thoughts on why this would be difficult to teach to like high school students. A lot of them are going to come at this from a privileged, oh, yes, those were the good old days. Look at how noble, look at how proper, you know, that's the moral thing to do. They're going to adopt his point of view and judge her throughout, too. And, and that's going to be the their, their takeaway from the book is that she was a lost lady. If only she had, you know, X, Y or Z. Um, and she even she had such a noble husband who, you know, gave it all up and she she should have sacrificed too. her own sacrifices are kind of like like, you know, Black Tom. They're very much well in the pack. You have to be looking for them because Neil himself is not acknowledging them other than just kind of through through the pack, you know, through his own you know faulty observation. Um, so we could look at uh, his disappointment in in Mrs. Forrester as Cather's own disappointment, her own indictment on this woman and her own infatuation with a time in the past that was beautiful, that it was godly, that was, you know, just the way that it was supposed to be. And, oh, it's too bad that this is what has happened here. The lost West, the lost glory days. But I don't think that's Cather's point at all in this novel. But I think that it would come out that way mm-hmm. <laughs> for many of the youth you're trying to teach. Um, and and that's where it would, I think, run into some of the difficulties there. Cause it's, it, it's so, there's so much more going on underneath. It's just beautiful. You know, if only I were as a youth, um, I'll say mature, even though I'm still trying to mature, but that <laughs> I would be able to pick up on that, but I'm just afraid I'd be just like Neil. Yeah. Right. And I, I love that because I, well, not that I love that, but I, I appreciate you saying that because I think <laughs> maybe Neil represents the American public and how like mm-hmm. we don't see things. We see mm-hmm. what we want to see and not the reality of a situation. Because when people talk about Cather as being like so nostalgic and longing for this past, like the way she actually writes about it, there is that layer but like you said, Trevor, when you look underneath, there's all this darkness and struggle and pain, you know, and even with Marion, um, when she had that accident and she fell and she broke both of her legs, she noticed that Mr. Forrester, when he carried her back up um, from the cliff she fell from, she was in the least amount of pain when he carried her. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's heartbreaking when you think about that, that she chose this man because he caused her the least pain, hmm. you know? Hmm. And when you really think about that in her situation, it's just heartbreaking mm-hmm. because then again, he, does he betray her by not taking care of her financially or is he a noble man? I mean, he, he gave dollar for dollar when that bank crashed. Could he have done 95 cents he and set her didn't. up? 
discuss you know? it with her right, <laughs> to yeah. see what she would have him do. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting point that the, 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 he was the one who caused her the least amount of pain. Again, that can be taken as that's pretty beautiful. And it kind of is, you know, he is a savior figure for her, but certainly that wasn't an accident that Cather put it that way. Um, and similarly, the, the man she ends up with that she ends, you know, at the end of her life, um, Oh shoot, I can't remember his name right now, but the 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 British man that she she meets in California um and he's from Argentina and so that's where they go to to live and that's uh, kind of where where she ends up. Even the way that she describes him, you know, not Neil is like, oh, she she ended up okay f- at least. But there are a lot of little side, you know, sentences or whatever in describing this man that are you're like no, you know, no, she, she just needed to, to be able to survive again. He, he doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, and at the same time, Cather's not so didactic. She allows that he is going to continue to fund, even after her death, fund the flowers and the ten, the tending of Captain Forrester's grave. I mean, he's it, not entirely an evil person. Mm-hmm. He's just that I don't know. He's just a, he's he's of this time, and and he's not perfect, and we can't valorize him entirely, but we also can't um, villainize him entirely. We don't even actually get to meet him, but there's just a little a few things said that you're like, oh, he he is not just some perfect man. He he's himself had several wives, and this is just another young you know. Well, she's not necessarily young at that time, but you know, another woman for him. No, Cather's that that subtlety and that nuance is what sets these books books apart. I mean, any of these just based on plot and, and subject matter would be a very good book, but what sets it over the top for me is just what you were just describing her subtlety, her nuance, her, she's so masterful. Like she will, you know, start to tell you the story and then she'll say, but 20 years before that, and she'll kind of take you back. And so she'll take you back and forth and she'll drop in a paragraph here, you know, that they would both get older, but let's go back here. And so she'll just kind of walk you back and forth and give you these little glimpses. So you have some perspective and some feeling that like what I'm seeing right now, isn't the whole story. And you'll get little tidbits that'll give you some insights, but not enough. And it keeps you reading. And Oh man, just, I was read the first 50 pages or so again last night. And as you have both said, I look forward to rereading it because on a first read, you pick up on some things, but I could just see this is the type of book that would reward, you know, probably 10, 15 readings, because I'm sure you would pick up something different every single time. So much depth. Yeah, so much depth. And one thing I love about Cather's novels is depending on, you know, if you reread them at different ages in your life, you know, um, they they just speak to you in different ways. Because mm. as a, you know, as an older person, you see things differently. Because, I mean, the first time I read A Lost Lady, I was probably maybe in my 20s. I'm not sure. But I hated Neil. You know, I just really couldn't stand him. Um and now with this reading, I really didn't even pay much attention to him. You know, I was, you know, clicking in on other things that popped up. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. And just that her novels, they can they can be pure entertainment or you can really dive deep and, and see what she was trying to say about this woman's situation because no one in town really helps her. I mean, that's another thing. I got so frustrated with the men in town who are all like, oh, poor Mrs. Forrester. She's not making great choices. 
Well, it's like, okay, where are her husband's friends to come and help and support her? And you see that so much in stories of widows. She's a widow um, where people promise so much to help somebody and then they never come through with that Mm -hmm. other than, um, you know, Neil, when he goes charging in there and sweeps away the town gossips um, and borrows Black Tom again to take care of Mr. Forrester, Captain Forrester. Um, but then even in the beginning, I'm sorry to go back to mm-hmm. something really early on that I just thought about is that um, Neil in the beginning gets a lot of his information about the dinner parties at the Forrester home from Black Tom. Mm-hmm. He tells them. So they have a gossipy relationship mm-hmm. at some level. So that's just kind of fascinating kind of parallelism or something with the the town women who were the gossips. That's true. Yeah, so, I mean, I, oh, go ahead. Well, just thinking on the, her, the, you know, Captain Forrester's friends, there is the one who comes into town after Captain Forrester's death who says, you know, I've got friends in Washington. Again, this is the way of helping is just see if we can use our political and financial resources, which are important. Um, mm. But he says, i got friends in Washington. I think I might be able to increase her pension. I'd like to talk to your uncle, you know, as her attorney. And that's when Neil tells him, oh, she she betrayed my uncle, you know, who was trying to do so much for her, wasn't charging her for his services. All of those are things that you're like, wow, that's that's what a good man. What a good man. But they're not helping her the way she does it. She has to help herself. And so she aligns herself with Ivy Peters, who is a scoundrel. And I think she knows it. Mm-hmm. But that's where she's forced to go because... Not Neil's uncle is basically still telling her what she can do to sell land and, and all of that. But Neil feels betrayed and feels like she's made a bad choice. And in the end, it's those choices that make her seem undeserving of this friend in Washington's help. I think he just leaves, you know, I think he decides against going and, and trying to increase her pension. Um, you know, she's, she's made choices. There's the bed she's made. She's going to lie in it now. She's with Ivy Peters, but that doesn't even really work out. And it it, it kind of brings us to the end um, where Neil is talking to this friend from their youth about Mrs. Forrester, who's now died. And they're like, Oh, they're so happy because it, it's Mr. Collins. Interesting. I should have remembered that was the name of her last (laughs) husband. Um, the, the kindest of, of husbands, you know, she says, tell, tell Neil that, um, things have turned out well for me. Mr. Collins is the kindest of husbands and Neil is happy with his friend. And they think she is well cared for. She was well cared for to the very end. It's not that these men cared for her. She had to fight for everything that she had. She had to forge these relationships. She had to, um, make sacrifices it with relationships as well because they weren't actually going to help her survive it's just it's fascinating but it's what, to me it's what humans do though we we find a way to kind of make it resolve in our own head where like okay well mm-hmm. it ended oh, well sure. i can i can move on yeah. she she had a good end to her life and then they can move on with their own lives it's so realistic it is yeah yeah i mean i know that i don't want to jump back way back into the middle of things but one thing i think that really struck me throughout this was just the whole idea of like myth making and kind of these a little bit of fairy tale aspects, you know, whether it's Ivy first showing up 
in this idyllic area and being described like as a scaly snake, basically his <laughs> face looks like a snake. So there's like this kind of garden of Eden thing going on a little bit, or like when she gets out of the carriage and she has almost like the way he views her as like a princess, you know, she's, and then throughout the whole book, we kind of see the way that, you know, he's set her up on this pedestal, but then by the end, maybe she's more like, you know, Cinderella or something where she's, doing all the housework and everything. But I thought those were interesting. And then all of that wrapped up with the bigger idea of that, the West, just the ideal version of the West versus the reality, you know, the, even the way that she describes, I was just going to read a quick passage if I could, because it's so beautiful. Um, This is talking about Captain Forrester. And it said he had seen the end of an era, the sunset of the pioneer. He had come upon it when already its glory was nearly spent. So in the buffalo times, a traveler used to come upon the embers of a hunter's fire on the prairie. After the hunter was up and gone, the coals would be trampled out, but the ground was warm and the flattened grass where he had slept and where his pony had grazed told the story. This was the very end of the road-making West. The men who had put plains and mountains under the iron harness were old. Some were poor, and even the successful ones were hunting for a rest and a brief reprieve from death. It was already gone that age. Nothing could ever bring it back. The taste and smell and song of it. The visions those men had seen in the air and followed. These he had caught in a kind of afterglow in their own faces. And this would always be his. And it's like, I know that that's one of the passages that might lead people to think she's idealizing the West. But within the bigger perspective of the book, I think there's a lot of depth there too. Like Mm -hmm. she's, she's clearly showing the realities of the West throughout the book, you know, the exploitation. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't these other things going on. And I think that's where the subtlety of of her stuff is so powerful, where there are all these combating realities that make it all so complicated. So some of those passages, mm-hmm. I mean, you can see why those are the ones that she's known for, because they just take my breath away. The writing is so beautiful, but I love that she doesn't just leave it at that. It's, yeah. you know, that that is setting the stage for all this other stuff that's happening. Yeah, she shows respect, but not... Um, of just blind reverence, you know. She mm-hmm. she she's able to to kind of see see through it. But I I think she also just re- again with these characters who are neither good nor evil. She's just I don't think she thinks that the time was either um, of those either. You know that this is people people, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason making it through it. Some things are much more horrible than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we always, I mean, there's, I mean, for anybody who reads literature from different time periods, you see that in every generation, everyone looks back and talks about how things were better. There's always that kind of Garden of Eden time in the past that people look Mm -hmm. back to, you know, whether it's the pioneer days or, you know, something else. It seems like every culture and generation has that. Mm -hmm. Paul and I, you know, growing up in the 80s, you know, the 19. 50s or the 1940s is kind of a golden era and when everything was moral and oh where have things gone ever since you know yeah it i i don't i, I i'm sure you, <laughs> i don't buy into any of that right um, but yeah. but i know that we we do that and even in my mm-hmm. own life sometimes i'm like oh 2018 that was when things were easier and i'm like wait a minute i just <laughs> forgot all the junk that was going on that i no longer <laughs> worry about you know, I don't know. Yeah, exactly right yeah <laughs> Yeah, I was going to so, say, oh, go ahead. Chris. No, go ahead. I was just going to touch on two things real quickly. I, I think it's really important. You you mentioned earlier having him as an outsider and, and the way that she uses his perspective, Neil's perspective, reminded me. I know that there's been comparisons to The Great Gatsby. And Chris, I think you 
mentioned mm-hmm. uh, something you had read about where Fitzgerald had even written to Cather and I don't know if he overtly apologized, but at least acknowledged the he debt did. there. He apologized. He said he didn't mean to plagiarism, but he, you know, it mm-hmm. seems like he did. And mm-hmm. he was, you know, he said I had written my first draft <laughs> when I read it, uh, I believe. Um, and she was completely kind to him and said, you know, people have tried to write about beauty forever in their own ways. Um, so she was pretty gracious about that. But, you know, mm-hmm. bringing up The Great Gatsby, I'm so happy you did, because one of the things <laughs> I wanted to ask you both about um, was uh, Lisa on Twitter brought up that Neil is so much like Nick to her in The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of outsider, slightly whiny mm-hmm. is one interpretation. <laughs> person who is the narrator and how reliable are they that kind of thing so i never thought about those two together i've when it came to fitzgerald i usually thought about marion and daisy buchanan together Mm. and not so much neil and nick so what do you guys think of that i think she's on um i i felt that too and i don't think i would have come to it naturally i read that you know there was a big debt to a lost lady in a great Gatsby. And the first thing I thought was, Oh yeah, they're both kind of told from this perspective of someone who's not actually involved in the, in the real story Mm -hmm. going on. And the thing that where that led me is, boy, I'm sure glad that Willa Cather as a a woman with her own experiences wrote this, um, wrote it first, in fact, because a lot of, a lot of Gatsby is still from a male perspective about Daisy Buchanan. And and that may have also led me to realize, oh, I did read Gatsby in, in high school and kind of always thought of Daisy as, you know, problematic. You shouldn't have done those things, you know, and Gatsby, you weren't worth Gatsby's admiration in all of that. And I'm like, oh, oh I shudder, you know, I, I cringe. But at the same time, I do think Cather does it better when it comes to showing us the true person behind all of these interlopers all these people that intervene or 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 force their eyes on the subject yeah no i would agree i don't know that i necessarily would have connected those two either but i do think i had noticed that outsider perspective as far as getting it through the lens of another person like that was the connection i'd made i hadn't necessarily linked those two characters but i was trying to think like other novels that I've read and and what that brings. And I do think it adds just, it it gives in the right hands of an author, it can give so much more depth because you're getting this perspective, but then you're also like the fly on the wall and you get to kind of sit in on some of these scenes that you wouldn't otherwise be involved with. And so I I really like that part of it. I was thinking, you know, like, I think even um, like Brideshead Revisited, you know, where he kind of gets swept into this great family and he's kind of trying to learn more about them, but like doesn't always get it all. And as the reader, because you're seeing it through that lens of him, you kind of have to work some things out for yourself, which I think through all these different books is one of the most valuable things that I like about that perspective of just what's not said or what's said, but you have to kind of interpret it a different way. I think that really engages you as the reader and also just adds that messiness, which is something I tend to love. So yeah, you know, and then uh, people say that, uh, Cather really was influenced by Madame Bovary, Flaubert's Mm. novel. Um, And that I guess early reviewers kind of made that equation that uh, Marion is kind of like, you know, the Madame Bovary of the plains or the prairies. Mm. And, um, and then there's also a Turgenev short story 
um, that scholars have connected to a lost lady. And I haven't read that. I have to track that down. And it's been long time since I read Madame Bovary. So I don't really yeah. know what kind of comparisons to draw there other than it's a adulterous woman. And there's mm-hmm. a carriage that takes them away <laughs> at one point. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there's, there's another, I, I don't want to jump if, if, you know, feel free to, to jump back in and, and revert back to something if you didn't get a chance to finalize a thought, but Another work of literature that I want to bring up is Hamlet, because Mm -hmm. Cather's um, epigraph to a lost lady is from Ophelia. I mean, what better clue that we might not be getting the full story from Neil? (laughs) Right. It's it's Hamlet, Act 4, Scene 5, when Ophelia says, Come, my coach. Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night. Good night. And there is a really good article. In fact, some of my thoughts that I've already expressed have been maybe taken right from it or extrapolated from it by Annalisa H. Smith um, that, sh- that was published. It's, it's Finding Marion Forrester, a restorative reading of Cather's A Lost Lady. And um, it's from 1978. And she goes through that Cather knew Hamlet very well. She actually wrote um, some essays on on Shakespeare and Hamlet, and her it, it, there's an interesting part where she talks about Hamlet himself. Says he was very sensitive, he felt intensely, and he suffered more than other people. But she also describes him as but a boy, which is I think maybe Cather's perspective of of Neil, or at least uh, part of it. And then I thought this part was brilliant: is frailty, thy name is woman is a boy's first glimpse of a thing that he shudders at. It is not a light matter to him that women are fickle. His mother is a woman, and Ophelia is one. And that just seems like something that is being pulled through this this book, it, it, that uh, Mar- Marion is, in many ways, linked to Ophelia. And I, I, I'll, I'll read you this last part where she's talking about um, Mrs. Forrester came smiling into Judge Pomeroy's office, wearing a new spring bonnet and a short black velvet cape fastened with a bunch of violets. And uh, again, Annalise H. Smith says, you know, this could be another link to Hamlet where Ophelia comes in carrying violets and various other flowers to give to the men and um, and says to, uh, to, to one, I, I would, or not violets, but I would give you some violets, but they withered all when my father died. And um, this, this is one of my favorite passages I've read in criticism in a while. It says, it, it is tempting to cite Cather's A Lost Lady as answer to the question she raised, uh, meaning Cather, in a review of Hamlet for the Lincoln Courier in November uh, 23rd, 1895. And this is Cather here. Take that one scene in which Mad Ophelia meets out to Laertes and the king and queen their destiny and flowers. Where else is there anything so delicate? Hmm. Just that that recognition of, of this woman and that delicacy and then provi- providing her own potential citation to that in A Lost Lady and in these passages that are also quite delicately handled. But I loved this this connection to Cather's own thoughts about Hamlet, to this yeah. epigraph she chose for a lost lady. I'm sure there's a lot more there. That was just a paragraph out of this essay, but I thought, oh, wow, I, I love this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Well, That's just the, the issue of fickleness, too, from a young man's perspective, from Neil's perspective, in the different scenes where he sees her, you know, as being this glamorous lady, and then of talking to Ivy Peters, you know, with a pail in her hand, like, you know, she's some milkmaid. And then later when he sees them in the kitchen and he's standing behind her while she's kneading dough or something with his hands on her breasts. And he judges her for that. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. what, you know, like that is so messed up and so Mm -hmm. twisted. And, you know, it's like victim blaming. And we still do this. Like this isn't something from the 1880s. Oh, back then, this is how we still do this. She knew, you know, she's doing such a good job of, oh, yeah, it's, Mm -hmm. and yeah, so, uh, so Ivy Peters, can we talk about him? (laughs) Do we have to? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That initial scene with the woodpecker. I mean, I remember the first time I read that and I was like, what the, I -hmm. I was shocked. And I, I, like other uh, of your listeners said, like, I didn't know if I could go on because I was so traumatized by that and i say that intentionally because you know as a nature lover and as somebody who is still coming at cather as you know thinking like i'm going to get a nice nature story it was so shocking um and i know robin made the point that you know anytime after that when ivy comes along you are on edge absolutely and i and i used to think that that cather had overdone that but when Robin brought that up, I thought, right, that's exactly it. Like, there's no slow buildup. When Ivy Peters is around forever after, you were on edge, mm-hmm. worrying about what's going to happen next. Absolutely. Yeah, Christy um, on Twitter also said something like that. She said, I almost couldn't read that part. You know, that feeling when a certain character comes into contact with an animal and you know it's not going to end well. That's the prem- premonition I had when Ivy Peters entered the story. And it's like you said, it's building up like i mean it it obviously carries through throughout the story in various ways but yeah that's got to be one of the most traumatic um scenes i can ever remember reading i mean i was going to bring up another passing of the west story that i think there's some connections with and and it's one that i know trevor loves which is butcher's crossing by john williams and it's talking about the exploitation of nature and in particular there's this massive massive herd of buffalo and they just sit there you know for an entire week or whatever it is and just blast away and just wipe out these buffalo and that in the woodpecker scene to me had a connection where it's just man just brutally exploiting nature for almost no reason i mean there's some economic reasons in butcher's crossing but it's wanted they don't violence. pan out <laughs> exactly and they don't pan out so just talk about one of those scenes in literature that i think will always stick with me well yeah horrific and that, but so well done and then he poisons the neighborhood dogs and everyone mm-hmm. knows it and no one's apparently doing anything I you know. know, that's another one of those questions I have about the story. And he's the successful one, right? Exactly. He's the one who who gets he wins in 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 from a certain point of view. Oh yeah, he wins. He gets the woman. He gets the land. He gets the wealth. He gets his fortune. He he is the example of how to do it brutally. But you still he, he got it done. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. I wasn't sure, you know, this might be too overt of a connection, but like his, the way that the the woodpecker is left kind of damaged and fluttering around and trying to find its own way. I I was curious if there was any, you know, connections between his treatment of the woodpecker and other things that happen where he leaves people, you know, 
kind of sightless and damaged and doing their best to kind of, you know, make their way through life. You know, again, that might be a little bit on the nose, but I thought that that was kind of an interesting, you know, just even with the way he treats her, putting her in this position. I mean, I'm not saying she's sightless because she knows to some, she's like we said, she's doing the best she can. But I do think the fact that he's kind of maiming and impairing those around him and leaving them to kind of find their own ways is at least one way to. Paul, that's a great point because there's that scene where she's on the kitchen floor and she's just kneeling there wiping the same place over and Mm. over and over. And like her, she's just in a glaze Mm -hmm. when somebody finds Mm. her in that condition. And I never put those two together, but I think that's a a beeline between the Mm. two for sure that her vision has become so clouded. She can't really see for a while. And she's just kind of stunned Mm. by what her life has become at that point. Yeah. Yeah. We have some woodpeckers we feed in our backyard and now I feel like putting out like extra food for them after (laughs) (laughs) pat them on the head. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Oh Oh my gosh. You know, it's crazy how some of this stuff can be just, you know, you you guys are bringing up points of horror, but the, the euphoria of realizing of Cather's gifts of, of presenting it this way is still there. You know, in my heart, I'm like, Oh, that's amazing. How horrific mm-hmm. that was. <laughs> yeah. no, it's like we said, it's so easy to write her off. I mean, again, going back to Jane Austen, it's the same thing people say where they'll throw her into like these parlor romances and things. And then you start reading them and you're like, wait, that's not what this is at all. There is all kinds of depth here. And I think it's the same thing. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they're both women, um, you know, that Willa Cather, we, we want to put her into this, you know, little house on the prairie kind of like safe zone. And then you start reading it and it's like, no, that's not even close to what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the other scene I wanted to ask you all about is the, the drunk dial scene when Marion is obviously intoxicated. Mm-hmm. She's been drinking and you see that steadily growing in the novel. It's mentioned a bunch of mm-hmm. times. And so she goes to make this long distance call and, you know, it's a drunk dial to mm-hmm. call her lover frank which paul when you were talking earlier it made me i don't remember what exactly you said but it made me realize that her affair with frank wasn't just for sex i don't think i think maybe she was setting him up for her next husband because Mm -hmm. she knew the Mm -hmm. captain was you know 25 years older what you know so maybe that was another reason why she was so upset it wasn't just heartbreak but it was like economic desperation Mm. that he had married this other woman and she's going to call. And, you know, Neil Niles (laughs) knew that that call was going to go downhill pretty Mm. quickly. So he cut the wire. Mm. So the local operator couldn't hear in and then spread gossip. Like, I mean, is that the, I I always have thought it's the first drunk dial in American literature, but I could be wrong. I've not researched it. Right. I think you might be onto something. That is amazing though, to, to pull it out, to, to term it that way. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's a, it's an amazing scene. Well, even that's so complicated. Like, is he helping? Is he, I mean, he, even that one scene encapsulates so much of what's going on because it's like, he's taking away her agency in some ways, but he's doing it in at least in his mind, out of the goodness of his heart. And so, yeah, it's just, it, it encapsulates a lot of what's happening in the novel where she is trying to take control and action, wh- whether 
you know, it's smart at that point or not is up for debate, but she is taking an action and a man who knows better is, you know, cutting her off and not letting her do it and saving her from different herself. Ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not seeing, but then not seeing the desperation, yeah. you know, he just thinks that she's being, she's drunk and being unwise and unthoughtful and not thinking, but then he doesn't do anything to help her. Yeah. He's just disappointed in her. Mm-hmm. Right. He looks literally cutting her. off her, her lifelines or her, her ways of escape, you know, yeah, literally snipping them. Yeah. Yeah. Cause her world becomes smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. Man, I want to, I, I may, I, may do this to re- reread it with my how my highlighter tools i mean i've marked these pages up and down with yeah. uh with note tabs but it, it, i may have to go get an uh its own copy mm-hmm. and just go through it again and it, it sounds so appealing right now to to do I because know. there's so much going on well like we well, said it's a hundred and between 100 and 110 pages and we've been talking about it and oh. we're just keep there's layers after layers yeah. after layers absolutely yeah and if for those of you who are really uh wanting to dig in there are these um scholarly editions of willa cather's mm. novels mm. that have historical essays and then explanatory notes um uh, you know historical explanations and then also who may have been a prototype for some of these characters in Cather's lives. So these are really great additions if you really want to dig in. Who's the publisher on those? Do you know? Um, they're a uni- uh, University of Nebraska Press. Okay. And yeah. And this one from a lost lady, it's uh came out in 1997. Isn't so. it fun to find a book that makes you want to go dig deeper into all of this and not just, you know, I enjoyed that kind of stuff in, in college and high school and, and whatnot, but it was always like, Oh, and also read these things alongside this story. And rarely did I want to, but with something like this, I'm like, Oh yeah, give, give it to me. I want to read mm-hmm. more. I want to read these, yeah. what these scholars and, and critics think about all of this. That's mm-hmm. okay. So that's what I'm going to do today is find that edition. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. I know they, they sell them uh, through the, well, you can go to the publisher directly or uh, the Willa Cather foundation in Red oh, Cloud, Nebraska. Great. They have a, a bookstore you could buy from them as well. How well, far are enjoying... you from that, Paul? From, from, that's a good question. I don't know. I'll have you to haven't looked Google it Maps. up. <laughs> no, I haven't. Because you're on my way. Like if I drive there, you're right in the middle of it. Yeah. So, there you know. go. Road trip. Yep. There yeah. we go. You took a road trip, right, Chris? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, I I lived out in Nebraska for a while, and okay. then um, and you know visiting family. But I've been to Red Cloud a bunch of times, and the first time I went was when I was in grad school at uh, University of Nebraska, and it was in the '90s, and you know there wasn't much going on. Um, in terms of what they had available to the public, you know, you could tour Mm. her home, her childhood home. And they had uh, at the bank, they had some things on display there. But now, you know, it's this huge national center that is the largest collection of homes dedicated to one author in the country. And, you know, they have a state of the art museum and archives and you know, tours that you can do. They have the prairie. I think the prairie was there as well, too. It's um, prairie that's never been plowed. So you can get a sense of what Cather and her family and other, you know, early settlers in the area saw. Wow. So, well, again, going back to that hashtag, if, if anybody hasn't um, explored, there's some wonderful pictures that a few people have shared from that area. Mm-hmm. 
um, that you should definitely check out, including, I think, like the wallpaper in Willa Cather's room and just some really cool little details like that. And I've noticed like Kim and some other people have been citing some other speaking of like reading that is springing up from this Edith Lewis, Willa Cather living a personal record is one that Kim is reading now as a result of having read this. So it's really Mm -hmm. fun to see everybody kind of getting infected with not necessarily a new enthusiasm, but just either finding her for the first time or getting reinvigorated. Like you said, Chris, where even sometimes maybe 10 years go by and you don't read and all of a sudden catches again and off you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's a real renaissance going on right now in Cather studies because it was just a few years ago that her letters, selected letters were published and there's a complete edition of her letters online that the Willa Cather archive was working on. And that really opens up, you know, scholarship on a writer and also, you know, their own words, as opposed to all these interpretations mm. of somebody that are often based on myths that were never that validated or that have been disproven. So um, it's just really a, a good time to start reading about her. And I think reading her own words is a great place to start. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, because some of the earlier scholarship or biographies are are based on things that have now been disproven, like that she burned her letters and things like that. Well, speaking of reading more, I told you I've read now, I think, four. So either one of you, I mean, I guess any other favorites or, or places to go next or, you know, Obviously, there's my Antony. I mean, I think O Pioneers would obviously be one that I would need because it's one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. But any other hidden gems, it's so to so speak, good. like a lost lady or something like that? Oh, well, there's My Mortal Enemy, which is another short, you know, novella length story that is also pretty dark. Mm. It's about this woman named Myra Henshaw who marries for love and throws away a fortune and what becomes of her. Ooh. Really See, short. I'm hooked. <laughs> yeah, another one. And that one, I think Myra's from Illinois originally. There's scenes in New York and then they end up in California. So that sounds great. Yeah. I still haven't read The Professor's House. That was one that I I, I put on our list to be a contender for the summer book club, but Paul had read it and we didn't want to do that. Okay. Is, I feel like that's a pretty good one for me, right? Yeah. Guys, we both have read yeah. it. All right. Yeah, that, that's a, that's, that's a really great next. one. Yeah. Yeah, I think you'd like that one. And it's been a while since I've read it. And so I, this could be not true, but I feel like, you know, some of the the books we've talked about, about Quiet Lives, you know, Stoner or an example like that is there's some things in common with that of mm-hmm. what we enjoy about books like that. So I think that would be a great choice. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Wow. But so many good books. <laughs> I know. By the way, Paul, so I looked, I've got this keyed into my Google Maps. If I go by way of Cheyenne, it uh-huh. would take me 12 and a half hours to get to Red Cloud. If I go okay. by way of Denver, it's 13 hours and three minutes. And you're kind of right in the middle. So you're mm-hmm. probably, what, six and a half, seven hours away from, from Red Cloud. See, there's no excuse for me not having gone there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's a really great place and a lot of fun. And but unfortunately, or I should say fortunately, actually, her childhood home is closing August 15th, I think it is, for a really extensive renovation. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the first one that they're doing or able to do in like 50 years. So it's going to be closed until 2023. But there are other houses and, uh, you know, the museum to see and, and, uh, you know, you can like see the Pelvelka homestead, 
which was the homestead of the woman who my Antonia is based on. Wow. Hmm. So a lot of, a lot of connections. That would be amazing. That might be more realistic than going to visit Jane Austen's home, at least for the foreseeable future. So. Right. <laughs> Some, uh, yeah, someday, someday. Uh, I know. Seriously. Yeah. We, Listeners, we you a... can sup- subscribe to Patreon. <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, that dream. Would be... <laughs> exactly. Well, I feel like we've kind of wound down a little bit. Are there other things, though, that uh, you, you're going to slap yourself after we hang up if you didn't get a chance to bring it up? That, that you just, you know, I'm, I very well, I welcome going back to even the first line in the novel if that's where you want to go. But, but I mm. want to open that up in case there's something to, to do. I mean, there. one thing, this is not really, so I mentioned Butcher's Creek. I mean, I do think there's Butcher's something Crossing. really fast. Or I'm sorry. Yeah. I keep saying Butcher's Creek. Thank you. Um, Butcher's <laughs> Crossing. Um, there's something really fascinating about these times in history where, changes are happening and we can look back and see that one era is ending or at least blending into another one. And so several of my all time favorite books just happened to coincide with this time. And I was thinking of like train dreams, lonesome dove and butcher's crossing. All there, it there it yeah. is. There it is. Lonesome dove. Right. Yeah, lonesome dove. I have to mention it once an episode. Um, <laughs> but like, I was just curious if for one thing, if anybody has recommendations of other books that might, tick those boxes but also just i wonder it's just kind of interesting i don't know if it's just me i don't think it is because obviously those books are are very beloved but what it is about those periods that is so fascinating you know looking back it's just interesting how certain time periods capture and there is the myth of it Mm -hmm. but more and more for me it's it's not just the myth it's the myth the the reality and the messiness of it i think that is also interesting and the the a lot of the ones you've mentioned are told from the perspective of of a time you know, beyond where you can look back and see how absolutely not just destructive to land, not just destructive, you know, that an era has ended, but some people's hopes and dreams were just mm-hmm. laid way, you know, just laid to waste because of someone decides to make the railroad line go up north 20 miles rather than south 20 miles. And mm-hmm. it just, you know, that's, that's um, something with Butcher's Crossing where you're like, oh my word, this whole community is done. Everyone who mm-hmm. went there and, and called the place, you know, we, we, we name it aspiration or we name it uh, bountiful or we name it, you know, something like that. And it's just a spot on, in a desert now, or, you know, mm-hmm. on the plains mm-hmm. that a lot of the books you brought up kind of, to me, have that personal element of, we put our hope in some of these ideals and it didn't pan out. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think it ties yeah. into our last episode where we we're talking about books getting about getting old and just the passage of time and, and looking back and Chris, you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. some of these books hit you in a different way when you read them at a certain age. And I'm sure that's part of why some of these books right now are appealing to me is just when you reach certain ages, there's just something very fascinating about looking back at these periods of yeah. lives or time. And seeing different slices of them, you know, because mm-hmm. I think we all grew up, at least in this country, with such a myth of the American West. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of contemporary fiction and obviously nonfiction is trying to really look at what conditions were. Um, to get through a lot of that mythology, which was in part created to get people out there, mm-hmm. to get the white mm-hmm. people out there to settle these lands, to decimate Native American populations, you know, um, mm-hmm. or to mine the land, like, you know, say use the those resources. Colorado. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But there's an interesting novel uh, by a woman named Best Reader Aldrich called The Lantern mm-hmm. in Her Hand. 
which is sometimes now considered like a, you know, a young adult or younger type novel, but it was written for adults and, you know, a wide audience. But that author, uh, she was from Iowa originally and then spent most all of her adult life in Nebraska. And A Lantern in Her Hand has a, a thing running through it about how towns fought to have the railroad come if not through the town, very near the town, because so much of their survival depended on that. Hmm. That sounds really good. Thank it you. is. It's a good novel. It's one of those, you know, um, that unless you know about it, you never hear about her in general. Um, but she she wrote, she was very prolific and one of the highest paid writers of her day. She was like a generation after Cather. And hmm. um, yeah, so it, that book talks, there's a great scene too about how when they, you know, people were coming uh, through the plains and the prairies in their wagons that the red grass was so high and it swayed so much that people actually got seasick oh, in their wow. wagons and would have to get out and walk. But then you get mm. out and walk and you got all sliced up by the grass. So, um, you know, those kinds of details are things that I find fascinating. Absolutely. That sounds really good. Um, anything on, on your end, Chris, that you want to to or another thing that you wanted to make sure we talked about well you you know everything on my little list here is checked off and you know i mean i could definitely keep talking <laughs> oh for, for sure for no and, that, and that's okay i yeah. i do i have one little thing paul you asked for recommendations of books but have you by any chance ever checked out the yon troll um movies the emigrants and the new land from the early 1970s it's yeah. about swedish immigrants to um is it nebraska i think it's nebraska i mean think of neighbor rossicky you know from willa cather think mm-hmm. of think of all of the the scandinavian folks in her books um this is about them it starts it starts in sweden with this family and takes us to settling the the, the new land in, in nebraska and they're amazing movies they're long um they are they're they're fantastic they're gorgeous to look at they're heartbreaking they're visceral um chris you reminded me of it because they're i i felt seasick watching their past crossing the sea like literally had to like sit down and you know (laughs) brace myself to keep watching the movie when i was watching that it's so well done um but you know, I know it's it, it actually is based on books, but I've never read them. It by Wilhelm Moberg, the emigrants unto a good land is what they're called, or at least translated into English what they're called. I've never read it, but the movie, I think you'll still get that feel you're looking for the movies. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and and it's like, I I mean, it's Max von Sydow, it's Liv Ullman. I mean, mm. come on. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sold. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. There's a book called. Um... Giants in the Earth by Rolvag, I think was the author. I mean, granted, this one is set in Minnesota, but it's, I believe it's Swedish uh, immigrants who came and they're settling the land there. This was around that that same time, which which might be of interest because you know, I mean, the Midwest was the West at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I I thought of also. There's that film Meeks Cut Off, and this is mm-hmm. the Oregon Trail. So again, it's not. Mm-hmm the exact same spot, but it does a very good job of just capturing kind of the 
long, boring stretches of just plodding along and, and huh. people get off to walk on the wagons and they're getting the kids and the livestock and everything, but then punctuated by danger crossing different, you know, rivers or, you know, being attacked by different people or, or things like that. So that's another one, as you guys were talking, that just kind of sprang to mind for me. So huh. such yeah. a fascinating time. And, totally. and here's our and, rabbit hole. I love Kelly Reichardt and <laughs> going into her. Did you ever, did you ever see her, her? You don't have to answer. We'll answer offline, but for listeners, her adaptation of, of Miley Malloy's um, both ways is the only way. I, I, oh, I, yeah. Okay. Yes. That, that's amazing. all I'll say, but yes, Meek's cut off is amazing. She is amazing. Yeah, Chris, is. I cut you off. I'm sorry. Oh no. I was just going to bring up another author um, and that's Frank McTeague. Oh, not Frank hmm. McTeague. Frank Norris mm-hmm. McTeague is one of his novels mm. um, set out West in like the, you know, late 19th century, his novels are pretty, you know, a lot of social realism from what I remember um, set out West. Yeah. Yes. I've read, I've read McTeague and I do think mm-hmm. you would love that Paul. Okay. I think it would be That's right great. up your alley. As always, you know, we, we didn't add anything new to read during this episode. I mean, it's, right, a, it's right. a shame we don't have anything else to do. <laughs> yeah. How do you keep your focus on anything? Like, how do you do this thing where you're like, okay, now I'm going to reread A Lost Lady and read all of the rest of Keller's work and get the plus it's, annotated editions. and Plus, and, I want to read Sokovalka and it's Women in Translation Month. And, yep. I, yeah. I know. It's so hard. <laughs> it is. It's beautiful. It's riches, but it is sometimes it's frustrating especially yeah. especially when at the end of a saturday when it starts out so exciting i realize i didn't read a dang thing today i know <laughs> you know i didn't do anything to make progress oh <laughs> well it's been delightful to to have this conversation today lisa put a lot of pressure on us on twitter yesterday saying this is like Never has she before been so excited about a podcast episode. And I'm thinking, oh my word, I, <laughs> I know. I don't know if I'm going to live up to anything. And I still I'm don't, so... you know, still feel the pressure, but right. I'm so glad I, Chris was here. Chris, we right. needed Chris. I have been delighted um, to, to, to have this conversation today. And I, I am very proudly putting it out there as, as something I think listeners can, can look forward to. And, um, and, and I'll, I'll probably be re-listening to it a time or two as I keep searching, you know, going through, Willa Cather's work. I'm, this was this was a blast, Chris. Thank you so much for for joining us. It it has been nice. I've listened to your voice, of course, for a long time, running to you on online, but it's always so nice to just sit down and have a conversation. Mm-hmm. This is a great way that we have to do this these days. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight to talk with you both and. I will never turn down an opportunity to talk about Willa Cather. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can't believe it's been six years with your podcast. And, and like Trevor said, I feel like I know you so well online and just having heard your voice for years and years. And it's wonderful to be able to chat with you. And again, just encouraging anybody who's not familiar, definitely go check out their podcast. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. And we'll definitely, you know, I, we have talked about your podcast on the Book Cougars before. <laughs> so we'll definitely get the word out about this episode as well. well thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, so here we are, the end of an episode. We we mentioned not as many books this time. Usually most of the work in editing these episodes is writing down the book list that we talk about. <laughs> um, but we did talk about some articles, movies, books throughout. Uh, the, the show notes are in the newsletter. Um, I think that's the easiest way for people to get a hold of that. If you're struggling and can't find out how to subscribe to that, just reach out to me. Let me know on Twitter at Mooks, M-O-O-K-S-E. 
Um, we do link to it uh, a lot as we, you know, on our Twitter profiles and such. But um, if you if you're struggling to find it, that could be on me, and I'm very happy to point the way because I think that's a great place to get the the notes of the various things that we talk about. So I'm looking forward to putting that together this week. Our next episode is another author focus episode. This one kind of, you know, we talked about Willa Cather. We we could it wasn't a deep dive into her works, uh, you know, plural. Um, this was our book club, but the next one, all about Cesar Ira. And I can't wait. I can't wait to talk about that one either. Just a bunch of fun things to talk about. (laughs) So fun. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again to everybody. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.